everybody welcome back to another episode of the house list you're back on it i'm your host and the producer of the show peter agostin this is my weekly podcast you can uh be um assured that at least once a week i'm going to put an episode up uh so i appreciate you checking in if this is your first time listening um the house list is is basically uh to summarize a weekly podcast where I chat with friends and colleagues in music um, that work in music one way or another or that have or that uh, you know whether it be a a music writer or thinker uh, an actual artist touring performing producer type artist booking agent or manager or publicist tour manager um, so on and so forth. I've had about all that up to this point too. Um, you know, a lot of people have worked with me in the live music setting, like the live show, show promotion. There's a, um, a myriad of, of ways and adjectives and, and, and so forth that you can kind of attach to, to basically booking shows or promoting shows. Um, and so last week's episode we had jake from rocks off and from the brooklyn bowl london um that was an incredible conversation uh he's a promoter and a show curator and on today's um episode or this week's episode rather we have uh another um from another spectrum of of that 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 I also know from New York City and that I've worked from New York City. We have Todd P on the show, Todd Patrick, who has been um, producing and promoting and curating shows in New York uh, for the better half of the last decade plus, 15 years, really. Um, and we kind of have an incredible conversation basically about his life and his career in show promotion and, and, and he sort of got his start in, in Texas and Austin and then moved to Portland, Oregon. And that's where I had first uh, heard of him really, cause I lived in Portland, Oregon from probably 1999 or 1998, the end of 1998 or something until about uh, the winter of 2001. Then I moved to Arcata, California, where I went to uh, finish college because I had bounced around to a bunch of different schools because I had been uh, mostly focusing on uh, writing for magazines and I ran, uh, was doing music videos and a uh, bunch of stuff that didn't have anything to do with going to school. So, but it had everything to do with music related work. So I, I heard of Todd P because he had a he had an all ages um, space show space in Portland called Twenty One Nautical Miles, which has a sort of notorious um, history, all, albeit a short one, and we get into that. And then he came to New York, and you know, spearheaded along with a, a few other uh, promoters, and and. Uh, community of musicians and bands and record labels and stuff 
and even booking agents, I'd say for sure. And of course the community of people that go support those, those, uh, purveyors by buying tickets to shows and buying merch and shit. <clears throat> he was, um, critical, uh, in, in, in that movement in like, uh, the late nineties, early two thousands on. And, um, uh, we, we jump into that. We talk about a lot of stuff, but I mean, you know, my foray into the live music world in, in New York city after a, a period of some independent, um, show promotion stuff was, um, being the talent buyer at the knitting factory and then, then shifting into being a booking agent at Panache booking, um, after that club closed. And during that period of time, you know, Todd was, uh, you know, synonymous with a lot of venues, um, primarily all ages, DIY spaces, alternative type spaces that weren't 21 and up bars, basically. I mean, that's the, that's the long short of it. And, um, so that's like death by audio, Glasslands, silent barn, monster Island, um, secret project robot, Dambro studios, um, Rubelod, you know, uh, I would even say Tommy's Tavern and Greenpoint, um, Market Hotel. These all existed at somewhat at the same time and some a little bit before, some a little bit after, you know. So we jump into that and there's like a whole slew of artists that sort of came out of that. TV on the radio, Dirty Projectors, Dan Deacon, uh, Vivian Girls, uh, you know, Japanther. Just um, a lot, a lot of artists from New York, uh, at least. Yeah. Now, the thing is, too, it's like uh, this exists in in different cities all over the country and the world, obviously. Um, Todd, uh, I think, set a certain precedent, too, that was followed in other places, for sure. I mean, too, because he was uh, like kind of a pioneer at South by Southwest and... Um, and he also like a lot of bands only played his shows for one reason or another. And a lot of it was simply because they were all ages shows. And so when you read these reports and you see this stuff uh, about ghost ship and the bell foundry, which is the place in Baltimore that just got shut down. And then now in Denver, um, Rhino, I've always typed this name, but I, man, I sometimes b totally butcher pronunciations, but, um, and you know, cause sometimes the pronunciation just simply exists in your mind too. But the spot in Denver, Rhino, uh, Seropolis, Rhino Seropolis, Rhino Seropolis, gotta say it three times sometime to get that shit right. That place just got shut down. And that was like the death by audio of Denver for like years and years. Um, so you know, Todd is a really outspoken guy. He's opinionated. He he's uh, um, worked through multiple venues being like shut down and bringing them back, namely Market Hotel, which was a place that, you know, he's resurrected and, and still has to deal with a bunch of bullshit. But it's all in the name of basically creating a space to book uh, um, touring or local musicians as the as the trends and, and, and um, uh, the you know stylistically 
artists evolve over the years you know uh um you know the the spaces need to exist so without kind of going over long about it um i think he's a he's an incredibly important promoter um he's a really you know interesting guy i have to just tell if he is listening uh you know how much i appreciate him taking the time because i went to his house he he's like moved moving into a place and he's got two young kids so you know i kind of like went there in the middle of the day so i appreciate um him taking the time and uh, as always i appreciate you guys taking your time to listen to these great conversations here on the house list um so why don't you know without further ado let's jump right into this um you know and uh if you're a fan of these conversations i'm having or some of the people that i talk to now trust me i realize that um uh you know from episode to episode you may you may know some or be completely unfamiliar with others but that's kind of what i like about it most so it's not really bound by any genre you know it's not bound by any things specific or any kind of rules at this point in time so that's what i like about it and i feel like that's kind of indicative of how even todd p did his shows and a lot of the the promoters i like the most where it's not really about one genre or kind of click it's just about like a, a bigger broader kind of idea so check this out my conversation with todd p here on the house list right now thanks so much yeah, there was a lot of that too when I lived there too. Like it was, it was like that time of like Super Eight film and sixteen millimeter. Yeah, well, it was, like, it was a time when all those people, all those people who were, uh, all our grandparents were dying, and so all of their estates were being uh, liquidated. Yeah, you can find all that. Put them to thrift stores. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and saw that shit. So when did you? When and did you? We, yeah, yeah, we, we started. When did you? Uh, Get to Portland, knowing that you were doing like you had already gotten out of college and stuff after that point, right? Or? Well, I certainly stopped going to college. Right. I, I it was in '96. I moved to Portland. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. I had uh, I visited Portland in '95, hung out with somebody at Reed College, and then my then girlfriend and I, well, she was just like, I can't go to college anymore. I can't live in Austin right. anymore. We were living in Austin, Texas, and um, I just started booking shows in Austin actually, which went really while well. you were in school. Yeah. And then I just like, she was like, I gotta go, we gotta get out of here. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm dropping out of school. And so we got in the car and drove to Oregon and had no wow. idea what the hell we were gonna do. Well, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I, knew, I had my older brother live there, and besides, yeah. I didn't know anyone else either. So, yeah. And you were in the, like, cause I remember, I think I learned about 17 nautical miles, like, while I was there, but I don't think I ever, I'm not sure if I went or not, but I know it was in the southeast, right? It was in the southeast. It's now part of the Delta Cafe, if you ever went to yeah. Delta, yeah. in Woodstock. Um, Delta used to be smaller in the size of the room we're standing in. Now. Right. You can see that on the podcast, but it then expanded into our space, and then later, and then ultimately the next space, I guess. Although I've never been in it. I never went back to it. But, yeah, um, me neither. But they... Uh, we were the spot next to them, which uh, they were not that happy about. <laughs> it was just like, what was it before? I mean, what it was just a it room? Was a like dry a... cleaner. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a dry cleaner. And which meant when we took it over, they had just gotten all the dry cleaning gear out. But little did I know that dry cleaning gear is like, you know, huge. They look like iron lungs, like massive, massive. Yeah, it's like huge know, appliances. Steel appliances. Right. And they, they fastened them to the cement slab with like massive, like three inch, three inch thick tar. 
wow. to keep them from vibrating. Wow. So we show up and there's just all these like foundations of tar throughout the building. Wow. To, like scrape. <laughs> that would take like weeks to even do that. Yeah, we had no idea what the hell we were doing, you know. How did you even come across that place? Was it an intentional thing at all? Or like you? I really wanted to have a spot. Like we uh, wanted to, because I'd done shows in Austin, in Austin, and we were like, we in our favorite, we were sort of inspired by these friends of ours who had, well, not friends, but people that we were acquainted with who had a record store. What was that? It's called Thirty Three Degrees, right? And the guy who which is not there anymore, right? Oh no, it's long gone. Yeah. But the guy who ran that, one of the two guys now runs a different record store in Austin, which name it escapes me, but it's very well regarded. It's like the coolest store. Right. Know? It's like on, it used to be at least on South Lamar, or not South Lamar, um, Cesar Chavez South First in Austin, and I forget what it is uh, called. Yeah, was it the one that they we would do sh- shows at too for yeah, South they like, by? they did all, like, all the cool showcases. Right. Or all the cool like off-campus showcases. Right, right. Showcase. Yeah, no, um, And they were, they were, he's still there too, um, Dan Plunkett. But anyway, he, I got started doing shows because Dan couldn't do shows at 33 Degrees anymore. And he was like, people still hit me up for shows. And so the, he asked me if I could hook up a show for, uh, in 1995 for um, Elliot Smith wow. and the Softies, Whoa. who were touring together in a geo. Um, and then, <laughs> <laughs> those people were, I believe Elliot was opening for the Softies. Wow. And uh, anyway, we couldn't do it. I kept trying to find a place to do this show, and I called every coffee shop in town. It's funny, they, had, they were supposed to play at an old spot in Austin, which was a really cool place called the Carousel Lounge. Hmm. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the Electric Lounge. And uh, they uh, and they got bumped. They lost their date to Possum Dixon, wow. of all people. Wow. And, uh, and then, like, so they were just like, we don't know who to call. And so I was just a massive Softies fan. I had no idea who Elliot, I had no idea who Elliot Smith was at the time. Um, and uh, I was just Mr. Indie Pop, you know. So mm-hmm. I, like, just called every coffee shop. And I was like, oh, it's just two women playing acoustic guitars. It'll be really quiet. Nobody had any interest. So we ended up just not getting him a show. Oh, shit. But my girlfriend and I drove out to Lubbock, which wow. is like 10 hours. Right, from Austin. It's a long haul. I mean, you do tours. you know. Like, <laughs> I do, and Lubbock is not that close no, to Austin. And nor is it a great touring town. <laughs> no, not at all. No. <laughs> Maybe somebody should change that. But yeah, they played at some skate shop or something, like wow. an abandoned strip mall or something. But so I saw them, and then we drove them. They stayed at our house for like four days, and we drove with them to like West Monroe, Louisiana, which wow. was the next gig. Or, no, I think they played Rice next, whatever, doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, so that was my first experience with, like, trying to hook up bands with shows was an abject failure. But we made connections. And ultimately meeting those two, well, the three people, uh, Rose and Jen and Elliot, ended up up contributing to my moving to Portland. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Yeah, they were just, you know, just they seemed like they came from a magical place. And And they're like, oh, you should check it out, man. It's cool. Yeah, and I'm sure we had, had, you know, in our dumb 20, 19-year-old minds, we had a vision of, like, they're going to be our friends. We're going to go hang out. (laughs) Right. We got to Portland and it was like, you know, it was only a few years after Riot Girl. People had attitudes. I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) And like, no, nobody was going to chill with us. So we were like, you know, but very soon we wanted to like open a record store or open a a space to see shows. And on the way to Portland, we stopped in in L.A. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And in doing so... Had you been there before? Never. Okay. Uh, Truth be told, I've only been to L.A. twice in my life. Wow. Interesting. Pretty crazy. Yeah. But um, I, I love LA too. By the way, I've been there a couple of times. Oddly enough, I've been to San Diego like twenty five times. But, <laughs> but that's because I ran a space in Tijuana. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah, not that long ago. Yeah, pretty I'm, recently. We yeah. gave it up about a year ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, it uh, actually less so. But anyway, we stopped in LA and ended up seeing a bunch of shows at the Jabberjaw. 
Oh, cool, right. Which is like burned in my mind is like the prototype for what these spaces should be. Oh, no way. It's an awesome spot. And there's a book that came out with Jeffrey a while ago, actually, I have here, which is really? amazing. Well, I book. think didn't Golden, I mean, Paul Tillett and Golden Boy started as like kind of punk promoters. I don't know. He was an 80s were, punk promoter. Right. Yeah. He, I mean, I don't know the full story there. I don't right. know him on a personal level at all. But he got started. My, my knowledge of the lore is that he began as like the guy putting on like shows for the Minutemen. Right. Right. I don't know how true that is, but that's the, that's the lore. Um, this Jabber is Jabber already Jabber the next does generation. 10 years later. Right. Yeah, right. Jabber does 10 years later. Jabber does hooking up, like, you know, hooking up, like, the makeup. Mm-hmm. Hooking up, like, Am- Amrep, Anthony Reptile Bands. Right. You know, like, they've, like, we were there. We saw, one night, we saw the makeup with, like, a bunch of K-Records bands. Because, again, I was Mr. Indie Pop, so I wanted to see all the right. K-People. But I also really liked the Nation of Ulysses, so I wanted to go see the makeup. And I'd seen them, like, a bunch of times anyway. Notably to nobody. I saw the makeup play th- twice in Texas to like five people. Wow. And I saw them at, the, at LA, in LA at the Jabberjot. It was like a bazillion people. Sure. Back the gills. Crazy. And this, you know, that place was this tiny little storefront with like meant to be a coffee shop and then it just sort of blew up into this venue space with like a tiny stage made out of like plywood. Mm. And it was the real prototype for like the DIY, you know, spot. Sure. And so when we, went, when we wanted to do a spot in Oregon, it was meant to be in that spirit. By then, and within, within like a year, Jabberjot was closed. Right. So where did the name come from? Because there's a there's an album with that. I know that's obviously like a nautical term. Oh, 17 yeah. Nautical Miles? Yeah. 17 Nautical Miles, was, I wanted to call it the Weather Radio. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is, you know, bad name. But I wanted to do that because when I was a kid, grew up in Texas where there's a lot of tornadoes. Right. And like inclement weather of all kinds, hailstorm or something. You know, you'd turn on this, like, there's a weather radio band on the radios, FM, AM, and then there's, like, on old radios, it'll be, like, the band for the, for the federal government's oh, wow. weather broadcast. Hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't and realize that. NOAA, National Oceanic Administration Weather Radio. Oh, wow. And it used to be these old 50s characters just being, like, expecting heavy clouds and, and winds up to 45 miles an hour through, you know, out to 17 nautical miles. <laughs> right. off the coast. Uh. And so as a kid, dreaming of, like, getting the fuck out of suburban Dallas right. and I would listen to this and be like ah oh, you know like some other aesthetic some other world right. something else um, and so I just always had that as an aesthetic thing in my mind my lady friend at the time was very into nautical stuff as was popular then aesthetically with all of the like you know mathy people right like you'd be able to call their their band like Brigadoon or something <laughs> and Portland Portland so too she, was like that too. yeah so I mean, she wanted to call it like the rust, the crusty barnacle wow <laughs> I wasn't or the anchor or something I was like fuck that no. right so the compromise we came up with was 17 nautical miles because it was cool. talking about nautical, nautical concepts on the weather radio later on this band who you know they were nice guys but they weren't people they ever like got to know too well or worked with all the time or anything but they were these like young suburban emo guys right called Crustide Named their record 17 Nautical Miles. Yeah. Had they, they had no interaction with the venue, though? Oh, they did. Oh, they, they played it. They, they really meant something. So it was... It was, it was cool. Yeah. They just weren't like... It was kind of an interesting, like, like, uh, like flattering situation. These kids interesting. Like, didn't feel like I, like, knew that closely. But they were so eager and, uh, and psyched, you know? I mean, I was never, I was never an emo fan. Right. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> but anyway, they were cool kids, and they were sweet guys, and they, like, really it meant something to them. That was, you know, that was what kind of, running that spot for two, a couple of years really, like, got me to realize, because, again, I was coming from, like, indie rock world. I was kind right. of snotty record collector indie rock dude. And I really came to realize, like, what, these, what the punk underground really was all about. 
I mean, the only connection I had to that was through like K Records or maybe a little right. bit of like Discord or something. Right, right. But not even really. Like I had seen Fugazi play, but I was never. I didn't have all those records. You know. Right. Um, I certainly wasn't like you know didn't know how to sing along to all the ter- all the words to it to every song on Minor Threats. You know, come yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and I wasn't sadly was unfamiliar with most of the like you know, of of like. Um, I don't know. You know. Everybody amazing from that universe. Now I right. love like early '80s hardcore stuff. You know, right. now I've become knowledgeable. But at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. So I came to know all that because it was an all-ages club with no booze. So naturally, the shows that compete that come to us are shows that are like classic teen genres. I mean, this is right. late 1990s Portland, Oregon. Yeah, which is and, in itself, I mean, it was a pretty like pivotal time just it, for that town. Too, it, right? it was, but you know, most of our crowd wasn't the like cool kids that much. You right. Know? Like when I was trying to get, I was trying to get shows with like. I don't know, Elliot Smith and, you know, Jody Blyle and God knows who, like those kind of people. And, you know, some of them would like play, throw us a bone and play a show once right. Like I wanted to get the feelings to play or something. Mm-hmm. They would never do it. You know, it was just like they wanted to play EJ, emos, or EJs rather. They wanted right. to play like, they wanted to play Satyricon. Satyricon, that was the like indie bars, yeah. if, they, if anything, or La Luna really. Because right. they saw themselves as like having, because, you know, of course by that time, what I was psyched on had already eclipsed my level of like, being able to accommodate them. I mean, the the place was only around for what two years? Seventeen was just a couple of years. Yeah. It was that the whole that was that the duration of time that you lived in Portland too. Yes, um, that was no no. I was in Portland for four years. So were you? So, you obviously probably had a job like a day job too or something. Not well. Yes. When I first moved to Portland, are you recording yet? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I moved to Portland '96, and uh, we right. didn't immediately do this. I mean, it wasn't immediately involved in shows. I started going to shows, and there was a place called called the O, which was like a really cool spot. It used to be called the X Ray Cafe. Mm. Which is uh, oddly enough now the guy who runs Voodoo Donut, which is like the like place every band has to stop on their way through right. Portland. But it's mm. trace. But anyhow, that place X Ray had closed a couple of years before we got there. The O was in the same space and trying to do sort of the same thing, but not quite as like legendarily. Um, and uh, we went to every possible show there until that place was done. And then they started the shows moved around. It was just, you know Portland had a history of like this all ages spot gets replaced by this all ages right. spot gets replaced by this all ages spot. And so we went to all of them, you know, and I also went to shows at EJ's and Sierra and everywhere else. Um, and then eventually we just like got to the point where, you know, it's kind of like a couple wants to have a baby to like, you know, <laughs> see if they can keep, keep the, uh, the reason they exist surviving. Right. Uh, you know, we wanted to do something to like, we wanted to finally like seal the deal on like what creating we, something. Yeah. So we came up with 17 Hours Miles. We were going to do a record store, but that takes money. <laughs> right. And you had to buy records to you know, keep buy buying. that stock. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and shelves and stuff whereas an all ages club is literally called room <laughs> right so we were able to get this spot that came open we wanted to be near our house we happened to live near Reed College so we were on Woodstock right. yeah I lived near Reed College for my like last year yeah, or, yeah. we yeah. were on the, Wood, on the Woodstock side or the Selwood side I think on the Selwood side Ashley was like in the house of Reedies oh yeah there were a few of those that was in that little neighborhood that was right there I mean I remember even like totally blacking out at Ren Fair and like yeah. I like delivered pizzas for the Little Caesars up the street oh, I, mean, yeah. it was like, I ordered for the Little Caesars frequently yeah yeah, yeah. I had the, uh, did the you, probably, you probably went to the same plaid pantry I think I probably did, yeah. Which which Reed House did you live in? Did it have well, a name? Uh, no, I don't re- I don't remember, but it definitely was like four or five people there it was within that neighborhood, which is mostly so nice houses like and professors. Off the top of my head, no, nah, because I, I, I knew them all. Yeah, and I lived in about um, three or four places when I was in Portland, and ended at Reed, and then uh, yeah, I mean it was a it was a great time for me, which was just a couple of years after your period of time there yeah. too. 
Yeah. Portland is now very, very, very different from that too. I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly only went back once, really. Really. Okay. And um, you know, it, you know, I gotta say, you know, nothing is Portland. I still love Portland, and certainly would rather be in Portland than let's say Seattle or something. Right. But um, no offense to Seattle. <laughs> 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 but uh, but anyhow, you know, Portland. You know, when I went back, this was like 2008 too. So I mean, God only knows what's happened in those ensuing right. eight years. Yeah. But like, uh, you know, I was sort of depressed by like what had changed, and equally depressed by what had stayed the same. Mm. And now I think that's probably still true. The stuff that was like, you know, a bummer is probably still a bummer, and the stuff that was like cool has sort of like become this other Portlandia level, like right. Seattle kind of like, you know, houses torn, like Victorian homes torn down to become Scandinavian design, weird, like fake. Frank Lloyd Wrighty kind of right. that everyone builds in those areas. Um, Did you have anything to do with Meow Meow? Do you remember that? I do remember the Meow Meow. That was the that next was me. phase there was, of... There was a oh. different, different guy named Todd. Oh, interesting, right. When I, when, when I was there, the Meow Meow was called the Stage 4 Theater. Oh, wow, I and don't remember that. it wasn't that. quite as like... And it wasn't like a curated space, if you will. You right. Know? And then the Meow Meow was like a more curated spot, but it was like also Christian. Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And so that was a different vibe. And so, like, um, you know, they were way more into emo. Than right. Me. Right. So <laughs> I remember they tried to come down to Humboldt, too, at some point. They wanted to start presenting in yeah. Humboldt. I guess they yeah. had that kind of vibe about them. They had, yeah. You know, those guys were always a bit um, more professional than me. Mm. You know, I've always had a sort of, uh, you know, distaste for, like, overly professional stuff so (laughs) but those dudes were like that makes sense I could see those guys being more like you know we're gonna start doing Meow Meow Presents or something but by all estimations you know kind of that story I told about that band Crosstide that named their record after the club you know of all the stuff even the stuff that I wasn't personally taste wise psyched on it's funny how much of that went on to become extremely important to some of these people's lives now I only hear about the individuals who go to the trouble of reaching out to me or saying something on the internet about it but like you know, it's it's it is truly humbling to like read somebody who's now 30, 40 years old writing about like something that you were involved in that you, that that became especially when you were involved in that you were just kind of like hosting for the sake of like, well, these kids want to do this thing, right. but like to have it be that level of inspiring is really important to me. And I think that's what I was trying to get at before we, before we cut for for a second is that like it took me a while to like really get up to speed on the like. Um, the canon of punk and hardcore and you know into emo and all these all ages genres ska all that kind of stuff but in some of it you know like isn't stuff i would ever pull out and listen to you know well punk. there's a difference between like having a venue and, and bringing people in and what like you're just listening to at home too oh. and you start to really absorb what everyone well, else is doing. you start to realize when like you're a young person that stuff that's just the getting together in the room with other people who are also geeky in the same right. way matters and I think that's even more important with the internet obviously I mean, this is a you know it's not like I'm the first person to say this but it's certainly true that with the internet there's even fewer IRL opportunities for people to hang out particularly young people who are more savvy of finding like-minded people on the internet than any of us could dream to be but finding like-minded people on the internet is not the same as like finding like-minded people in real life and actually having a chance to interact with them make out with them you know do whatever you're going to do and that's then I think that's why these spaces are really important, especially in small towns right. where there are interesting kids. And that's it's really the legacy of what I remember from the kids that that I saw come, the, the high schoolers who I saw come to the spot, who 
now have moved on. Some of them maybe still are in Portland, but some of them are like L.A., New York. There's a real diaspora. Um, and that, and I guess that's really what I was going to get at before is the idea of like, as much as I served and tried to serve the kind of like cooler than thou crowd that I wanted to be part of um, at the time, of like whether they be kind of East Bay punk kids that are relocated to Portland or whether they were like the actual like remains of the K kind of world, the kind right. of like you know cool the cool side of grunge, if you will, <laughs> mm-hmm. which did have its base in Portland, you know. Most of those people, they would do a couple of shows with us, but we weren't their spiritual home, and they weren't interested in making us their spiritual home. They were, they were older, they were into sort of bigger and brighter things. But, and even the like punkier kids, they kind of wanted more like edgy spots or something, you know? But it was these young kids who were involved in straight up hardcore, straight up metal, straight up um, punk, that really sort of coming out in great numbers, and that you really started to see how this like became a important part of their sense of who they were Mm. Um, and it was you know it's especially humbling to me given that my ignorance of what I was even presenting at the time like um, but it really became something out of itself and not because of any brilliance of how we were doing it right what what were the bands then just those the local bands or the groups that there was really a ton of different ones it really depends like it's like I mean we made a list when the place closed of how many bands played there and I want to say it was like in just under a year and a half or so, we, we hosted something like something like 500 bands. Wow. I, mean, I don't know if that's even mathematically possible. But it was, was it a show? Were you doing shows every night of the week? We were. Nice. Yeah, I mean, there were times when, you, when we'd have dead time. But right, of a course. A lot of times right. we were every night of the week, right. which was always me. You know, it's a, sort of like, um, you know, Eden Wilbur at DBA. It, right. Going hard. Is like, he was the guy behind the, the sound, soundboard. He was the guy booking the show. He was the guy... You know, painted on the wall. Right. You know, that was me at one point in that place. And it, it was just, you know, huge. And you just sort of immerse yourself in it and you become that thing. And that just becomes like everything you're all about, you know. And when it goes away, it's 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 heartbreaking. But then at a certain point, it's just like relief. Right. You know? What was the moment that it was time to just like close it? Did it, did it billion bot or something? Or did you just be like, fuck it, man. It's like time to... We, close this down we were getting really really popular honestly everything we were doing was really big at the time and people started wanting to play there like started getting a lot of booking agents calling right. us which you know like I was saying at the beginning of the beginning, I don't know if this got on the tape but like yeah the booking agent thing used to only exist for bands who were like at a much higher level definitely and so we started getting those people calling us at a certain point mm. now there were times that I'd made relationships with some of these people um, because we wanted somebody because one of those kind of like legacy level indie rock people and when right. I say indie rock I mean like what indie rock was in 1995 to me, which was like the the people that are in half cocked, <laughs> you know, right. like that was what I was. That was my idol. That was what I wanted to right. see. You know, I wanted to book God Hit Silo. I wanted to book like um, I don't know. I wanted to book like Unrest or Air Miami. Or Hell yeah, okay. that's the stuff that was cool to me. Do you remember the agencies back then? Because a lot of them don't exist yeah. anymore. Oh, Flower too. was a big one back right. then. Flower was the hot one in those days. Right. And then um, hold on a second. What's up? Which which bank? Oh, Chase. Where? The chase right here. It's the, it's right there next to like a next to Corrado. Three digit it's on next to Corrado. Okay, I'm Yeah, yeah. And just use like I said, they have at Chase. They have these weird teller kiosks, not the ATM. If you go to that, you can get this amount of money out of it. You can just drive, right? You could, but it's right at Fresh Pond, you know. Yeah, drive. Let it drive. Okay. Um, in any case, that was what I wanted to hook up. But right. most of those people were not available to me, right? Know, because they wanted they had a, they had real agencies and whatnot, or just weren't 
that moment had passed and like they were the ones that the ones that were accessible to me were like they're not touring anymore were not that relevant but we ended up booking something else you know we were booking other stuff and you know I got a lot of connections through Calvin Johnson because he was just sure that guy was voraciously seeking every you know New Orleans spot that popped up and was a real supporter and you're so close to in proximity to yeah. them too right yeah definitely and he I think they liked playing Portland when they liked playing Seattle right so all those K people and everyone that K was friends with were funneled to us and right. to some degree kill rock stars people too so that right. was our little connection to like the world that I was seeking out to mm-hmm. be hooked up with but most of what we started doing was other stuff and then from there came this kind of local Portland band I think some of whom started out as like bands that I didn't think were that compelling but then they would just get better and they would get their influences would exponentially increase you know right. and so there's you know even just a year and a half time frame the kind of like arc of the, of the people who wanted who wanted to play there and the bands that were forming and like what happened with these bands was just pretty mind-boggling right. honestly in terms of like how they got so much better so fast just because they were being cultivated you know? right well the room obviously was a catalyst to that to yeah. a certain level as well yeah I mean it was and it wasn't obviously it wasn't just our room sure was, we weren't having a vacuum there were other good spots going but all of it together coalesced and being this right. thing where where good stuff was being appreciated and that was something we was you know none of it was how I would have envisioned it would have happened, but it was really, you know, awesome to have had to have been part of it at the time. Um, what happened to the spot, the way it went down, is that we we were getting really popular, and we were we were getting a lot of people. And we were in this like tiny storefront with no real legality. Right. We didn't sell beer, so nobody really bothered us too much. But truth be told, that the fire department would ever come, that would be. Well, it was all it was full. You were at capacity a lot, right? Way over capacity. <clears throat> It was like a tiny little storefront and we'd have 200 people on it. Right. Same with the average job. Exactly the same thing happened to them. Uh, and I didn't have the knowledge nor the means by which to legalize such a thing. But what we did have the knowledge of is, hey, things are getting better for us. Let's open a bigger place. And of course, we right. naively thought we could just get a four times the size space and operate <laughs> the same way. Uh-huh. Uh, and we started doing so with doing some really high profile shows. Like suddenly we were diving into it. The booking agent. Work. So you did. You did find another room. We did. Was it under the same name? No, it was a place called the Glass Factory, hmm. which uh, because we took over a section of a building that used to have a bottle factory in it. Interesting. We lasted about three weeks. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then we were dumb enough to have given our notice on the old place because we were like, we're going oh, to so the new place. Fuck yep. the old place. What are you doing for? Wow. Because we were like, we're too close to residential in our old spot. We're going to get shut down. This is the smart look. We're doing the right thing. We're moving to an all industrial area. Mm. But, uh, you know, the problem with booking big-time stuff is that there's already big-time people who went to the trouble of getting permits and getting everything legal. Right. They're not terribly happy to hear that somebody is showing up <laughs> and trying to steal the good bookings, right. no matter how cool you are. So for some reason, they just don't appreciate that it's cool and you should <laughs> exist. So people are told to check in on you. Uh, not to mention people in the city are like, there might be a fire there. Right. There might be a lot of loss of life. We should probably check in on Yeah, there's hundreds of people in an unlicensed place. Yeah, we were doing like Slater Kinney shows in cool. 1990. In 1999, when Slater Kinney was like already blown up. Right. Like, they'd been in the New York Times several times. And we were doing shows for like, you know, big time punk people. We had a sh- but we had a show booked with the Buzzcocks. It never happened. Wow. But we had we were trying to do shows with like people, maybe not Modest Mouse at the time, but like right up to that point. Right, right. To bring up your friend Robin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then what happened is we got shut down. You know, and then we tried to keep going, and we thought we could comply with like doing it DIY style and just following the law by like reading the book and like, being, well, what are we supposed to have? We'll see how's the exit supposed to look. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that didn't fly. 
Um, so that was the end of that. And then by then we'd given notice on 17 nautical miles and they, and the landlord was like, hell no, mm. you're not coming back. And so then what? So then it, was, was it the just end. time to leave? It was the time, it was the end of me doing shows in Portland. I right. had a couple more shows at my house. Right, cool. But uh, just to sort of like, you know, fulfill obligations and do something fun. But yeah, I went through a period of being pretty, pretty bummed and yeah. uh, drank a lot of alcohol. And, uh, well, you're on a high too when you're, you know, when you have great shows all the time and you're amongst people all the time. And uh, everybody, everybody's calling you and everyone's like, you know, kissing your ass. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like being, being a like go-to spot for like the cool shit in town is like, a, it's definitely, it's definitely a, 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 can be intoxicating. Yeah. If you're young. And sure. The younger you, you are, probably the more intoxicated. Definitely. Yeah. And, so then at what point in time were you like, it's time, I'm going to move and... You know, I stuck around Portland and sort of starved to death in a house that didn't have any heat because we couldn't afford heating oil. Right. For about, well, for, I did that for a winter in the, you know, shitty Portland rainy winter. Yeah, those are sleeping with a hat on. (laughs) Watched my, watched my one, my bandmate, or my housemate rather, play Legend of Zelda while we like played records and, (laughs) you know, blankets around us and tried to get like boxes of free food from Salvation (laughs) Army and like tried to get heating oil assistance and, (coughs) excuse me. Eventually, we, uh, eventually I got a job doing tech support. Mm -hmm. Uh, and did that for about five or six months and saved some money up. And then I was like, you know what? I should probably finish that college degree that I put on hold to kind of move to Portland. Oh, wow. So, yeah. so yeah. So that's what you, you, when you left Texas, you were still like, how had you, how long had you been in school for? I had been in school for three and a half years. So oh, was, so you were close. I was only nine credits short. What were you majoring in? English. Ah, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, because a lot of careers in the English industry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Show promoter might be like at the top uh, of the list. Right yeah, definitely. definitely. Uh, so I did that, and um, and then I I moved back to Texas. Okay. Lived so to Austin? No, Dallas. Dallas. To okay. Denton, well, the McKinney. <laughs> oh, wow. my folks had moved to. And I lived with my folks for a few, for a, basically for a summer and a, and a, and a fall um, because... I wanted to finish my degree, and so I went to University of Texas at Arlington, wow, which is um, you know an hour and a half drive from McKinney every day um, to take this intensive Spanish language course because I had like skipped foreign language because I'm you know not terribly good at picking up foreign languages, um, so I was trying to get that credit in there, and I uh, failed. <laughs> <laughs> I failed. And I failed, and then I never got the credit. So I still don't have the degree, but. Uh, but oh, pretty, so pretty, is that all the, that's all that's left though. It's that's just all that's that. left. I, th- I suppose I could write to the University of Texas and petition to like give me another chance. <laughs> right. At, at this point, I'm feeling that I, I could probably get by for the rest of my life without that degree. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, you've done well so far. Well, you know, who knows? Someday the bottom will fall out on the rock and roll world, and I'll have to go get some kind of other job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I can get one that doesn't care if I have a degree. But anyway, um, definitely, kids out there, finish your college degree. It's good for you. Don't do what I did. But I moved back, and then I, uh, you know, before I left Portland, I met this girl, and she was from, she lived in New York. She went to, she was on an exchange program at Reed, and she was going to Sarah Lawrence, and she was like, right. oh. you know, and I was like, oh, I had dreams of like, oh, and she made New York sound so awesome. So I was like, came to visit Brooklyn and see her, which was like a total train wreck. And uh, this is in like 2000 or something? 2000, yeah. And, uh, but I loved New York. Sure. And I was like, this was awesome. And I, I love New York. Even though I'd just been dumped, I still had a really good time and enjoyed myself. Uh-huh. Oh, while you were there, you were dumped. Oh yeah, the moment while I you're here. Plane. 
I was like, you could have told me this before I got on a plane. And she was like, I did, and you didn't listen. She's like, ah, oh, you're probably right. But, uh, you know, I was a fool. But um, anyway, I still had a good time, you know? And I was like, this is where I want to be. Okay. So five or six months later, I uh, had an opportunity to tour with my friend's band, play play uh, keyboard in his band. And we I booked the tour with all of my all ages show resources. Nice. And we did this really weird, crazy tour. And what was the band? It was called the John Henry Memorial. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think it was ever. I don't remember that anymore. But John Henry Memorial is this guy named Davis Hooker. He's very talented. He was, you know, he was sort of in the same circle as like uh, Adrian Orange and Thanksgiving and those kind of folks and mm-hmm. the microphones, right? Matty Ray. Um, you know, it sort of sounded like uh, Leonard Cohen mixed with David Bowie. Oh, interesting. It's a weird combo, but it was, it was good. I was very happy about the music. So you booked the tour, too? I booked the tour. And it play, obviously it came to New York. It landed in New York. That was where it ended. The idea was to like move here that way. Where, did, where was the show at? At, at um, the Pink Pony. Oh, I don't remember that place. Pink Pony was next door to Max Fish. I think it might oh. still be there as a French restaurant. It became a French restaurant. Interesting. Still called the Pink Pony. Sort of like the story of like Sweetwater, when Sweetwater became this like bistro. Mm-hmm. Sweetwater used to be the grudgy, the grubby punk place where you'd go like meet guys from the Cro-Mags. You know? Right. I remember that. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's, yeah. The, back in those days, the Pink Pony was like, the guy behind the counter at Pink Pony and our connection who booked the show for us was Josh Deutsch, better known as Josh Diamond, mm-hmm. who went on to be in Gang Gang Dance. Right. But Josh was this dude from Philly who was friends with our friend Tom, who had booked our show in Philly and was like oh call my buddy Josh and he'll hook you up with a show at his coffee shop right. he was just the guy behind the counter there and this is a day when you could run a coffee shop or like you know had no business model and nobody came in and you could still survive in New York City somehow. Right. those days ended within about a year but, <laughs> but that's what that spot was so right on Ludlow in those days a couple blocks like a block and a half up from Cake Shop right Yeah. there, there was Pink Pony there and um, we played there to four or five people uh-huh. that was the end of our tour and then, and then you just stayed there from there too. I mean, you had already moved moved to New York, right? Oh, well, no, I moved to New York as part of the tour. Okay. So it, I had sort of worked out a time a place to live, not knowing anything about New York. And they said, "Oh, I live on Forty Seventh Road." And it was Forty Seventh Road. I assumed that was Forty Seventh Street. Doing nothing about New York. And I was like, "So I'm going to live in Manhattan." <laughs> no, I was going to live in Long Island City. Yeah, Forty Seventh so Road, right? Yeah, so I show up and I end up going to this part. This my bandmate's ex girlfriend's house. Um, and uh, oh, I don't want to see my phone. And uh, I end up going to my bandmate, saying it's it's my bandmate's ex girlfriend has this apartment that everybody has suddenly bailed on her in the middle of the month. Mm. And so she needed to be rich. But, but they weren't out yet. So I ended up sleeping in my car for a month. Wow. Parked outside of her apartment and after her mates would leave, I'd sneak up and take showers. And oh, room. man. Yeah, it was a mess. But um, I, uh, I ended up moving to New York that way and then I got did temping. This is the, still the days of the first internet boom and you could right. get temp jobs. There's some reason my phone's blowing up. Um, so yeah, then I started, I didn't want to book shows. You know? I just wanted to like I, I I used to as an English major, right? So I was a writer, and I wanted to write. Um, and I you know, there's another industry that really a lot of times right. in the writing industry, you know, if you're creative, don't want to do journalism, which I didn't. And so I you know I started going to like so fiction. 
fiction, fiction and poetry, um, which is ironic because I've never read poetry really in my life. So I've to write it. I don't know. But um, I mean, exception of like E.E. E. Cummings or something, right. Walt Whitman. But I, uh, I, you know, started to try and immerse myself in that. I went to like KGB bar and stuff and places where writers supposedly hang out. Went to like open mics and like weird roundtable reading sessions where, you know, and you find out that like that scene is sort of dominated by two sets of people, people who are in grad school and people who live in halfway houses. Right. Yeah. And neither of which really spoke to me at any level. So I very quickly felt it felt um, alienated from that world. So here I was in New York, working temp jobs, wearing a suit, working in the financial industry and not having any sort of reason to be in New York. You know? Yeah. And there's that period of time that, um, you kind of realize that and it's like but you have to you're also in survival mode too because yeah. it's like you know you're here yeah and it's exciting and you don't want to be a failure you know right um, and I was doing that and I was just like well because I, I firmly believe that sort of making New York work takes like a, com- a confluence of four things you know first you have to have a place to live right of course second you have to have a means of of income of some kind you know third you have to have a reason that you're here. And fourth, you have to have some kind of romantic life. Right. And those four things together is what makes New York function, probably anywhere, but particularly New York. They're harder things to make happen here. And I didn't, you know, I was sort of failing on all of those except for the place <laughs> to live. Uh, but I had the job, finally, eventually. And so, you know, I just kind of wanted to see where it went. And I was enjoying myself. I was going out to shows and stuff. I was seeing shows at Mighty Robot and mm. shows that Fitz was putting on in those days, which were cool, really cool places and had not exactly the same as my experience in the West Coast. You know, there was nothing going on in Greenpoint at all. You know, there was like a natural food store and a Thai restaurant. And that was it. You know, nascent gentrification. But there were at the time people putting on weird shows. Like some other friends of mine had moved. One of the reasons I wanted to move to New York, and aside from this woman, I was enamored with was uh, that I knew other people who moved here you know Chick 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 were people I used to hook up with hook up all the time in Portland for shows right because they're, they're from Sacramento right yeah. originally right precisely so the Chick 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 had moved out here uh, and their band Outhud as well mm, okay and then and also uh, The Rapture who, who were from Seattle then they were actually from California they briefly lived in Seattle and then they moved out here and those were all people that I like knew and had all relocated to, relocated to New York and those dudes had all been involved in like putting on West Coast style DIY shows in like dive bars and stuff. Mm, right. And Chick 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 had a house on Taffy Street and they put on shows there. In the house, right? In the house. And there were some, probably some other warehouses here and there, right? Like there were were just a few. Right. Most of it, there was a lot, well, actually, that's actually not accurate. There was just a few that were doing stuff that is of much interest to me. Right. But there was a whole lot going on that was of more like sort of <coughs> Burning Man tilt. Right. So this was right after the end of the, right, at, right really around the thick of the dot com and just before September 11th. So there was a sh- ton of warehouse stuff going on, but it was way more like money and like, you know, art infused, but not exactly art I find good. Um, a lot of like, you know, a lot of warehouse lofts occupied by guys who like do metal sculpture. If you know what I mean, nothing against metal sculpture, but imagine like the archetype of like the bro dude with the shirt off welding, you know. <laughs> right. Those kind of guys are, were largely who was in Williamsburg right. in, the, in 2000 or 2001. So, yeah, that was a big deal. Like, there's a lot of that world going on. It was, you know, and there was a lot of those guys had money because of like IPOs and whatnot. That, I think, is what more than anything led to the final like huge explosion of Williamsburg is that there's just all these kind of money parties that got thrown. 
at these spaces that had been these kind of like freewheeling, hippy-dippy kind of art spaces, places like Ruby Lad, which still exists yeah. in some incarnation, or like um, the Flux Factory, which also still exists, but in a very different incarnation. Flux Factory was in the building that became Monster Island. Right. Yeah. And then there was like, right around there was a place called the Old Dutch Mustard Factory. Mm-hmm. And then there were smaller places like BPM that I did shows at later. But there were all these art spaces in Williamsburg. No, they were not all punk spaces at all. They weren't certainly weren't indie punk spaces in that sense. Um, but they were arty spaces doing different things. And so the indie punky scene that I was familiar with all kind of used those spaces and kind of made it our own. But it was never like was still New York still very much was not a stop on that underground railroad. Right. Yeah. It just wasn't there. Like I remember booking shows. Like I booked a show for my friend's band Busy Baxham. And uh, they were definitely an indie punk band if there ever was one. And, you know, we couldn't get a show in New York. We really tried. You know, couldn't get a show at Brownies because we weren't, you know, we weren't like of that same crew that I was talking about, the like half-cocked kind of like mid-90s indie royalty right. rule. We weren't that. That was more of the of the era at that moment in time probably in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Brownies was the... Brownies was a spot where like the established indie world played. Right. But they also had embraced stuff from like the stuff from... Uh, that's happening in Providence. Right. Really yeah. Really into like uh, those kind of bands. Yeah. Providence seemed like maybe more, it would almost embrace Providence what you're trying to do more. more. Right. And I had done shows for Providence bands in Portland. Right. Like of course. I done shows for Air Run Radar. Mm, yeah. Those kind of people. But yeah, all that stuff um, was a big, a big thing. And that was sort of, that was, they, the Providence people were like the concentric circle between the kind of like indie, indie nightclub scene and the like warehousey indie punky scene that we all were friends with so because like the Sacto guys knew and the Rapture guys knew the Providence people because they had hardcore they had similar hardcore backgrounds right and they had all played when, when they were all in hardcore bands they'd all played the Providence warehouses right and you could say the same for like places like Baltimore or like uh... Baltimore wasn't really happening much yet right but okay. yeah. I mean there was stuff I mean Baltimore in those days was like Love Life was the big band from Baltimore mm, yeah is that what they were called then? Was Love Life the later name or was Love Life the earlier? Now they later on became, uh, what the hell were they called? Yeah, I'm not sure. She, but they toured a lot with like, they got really associated with TV on the radio. Okay. What was her name? Or what was the name of that band? I used it shows with them. You know, my mind is all slipping in my old age. Well, but I can't Love remember. Life, Love Life was a big like, of was like, well, because you remember, there was a big scene in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. So well, that was like I, the more, the rock, like the kind of, uh, like a, well, yeah, like a veil. Young, and young pioneers right. and the veil and like, those kind of people. There's a whole right. like really vibrant hardcore scene going on there and then like yeah. all the stuff that came out of it. So like, I when I thought about the indie hardcore, indie punk world, you know, you know the people that would also play with like Three Mile Pilot or something. So right. like a West Coast connection. Or they'd play with like, um, Antioch Arrow. Which is really the prototype for things that would become like the faint or like right. the prototype of what would become like um, sort of like interpol kind of goth, you know, gothy, you know, new wavy stuff with guys wearing black with a red tie, mm-hmm. you know, skinny <laughs> ties. That scene, oddly enough, is just wholesale stolen from all the band that, that The Rapture, who oddly enough is not actually that genre, came out of who they were doing that. That whole Antioch era kind of goth punk, goth hardcore, goth new wave thing, new wavy redux. Um, sounding like Curious Pornography or something or really all sounding like Joy Division or you know New, New Order or something but they uh, 
that was the vibe. You know, it was all these people. That, that was a real fashion moment that came out of a DIY background that became a commercial fashion moment, like an actual like fashion industry thing. Absolutely. Magazine fashion the West, right. on the East Coast. So when I got here, there were all these people who looked just like they were in like bands that would be called like the centimeters or like called like the calculators. You know, all, all those like West Coast people who were all on those particular record labels, you know, right. that like Sonny was putting out the records or something on GSL. Right, GSL for sure. And that was the scene and that was what the rapture came out of. But right. the rapture wasn't those kind of guys. Which is funny. Yeah, well, that just goes to personify. They had already moved forward. Right. And that's when they embraced the kind of like funky kind of stuff, you know. And Chick 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 wasn't that, even though there was like a connection with that. So the people that I knew from the West Coast who moved out here weren't doing this thing that had been wholesale stolen from the West Coast as a fashion and a style thing. So it really, that situation when I got here was a real educating moment to me about how stuff disseminates and how the like DIY thing that was so vibrant where I came from or what I had familiar with had become this more like. How it was, how it was, how it fed into what New York is, and in doing that, I got to understand really what New York was because I saw people who, like, off the bat, looked like the kind of people visually that I would be like, oh, they're probably cool kids, that you'd realize they just weren't, right. <laughs> you know. And that's when you start to realize what you're going up against. That's so that kind of helped me to like get my head around how to like make a scene work here. You know, you you how to make it sort of translate to what the things are here because I mean, New York's really its own nation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, Portland is in to a certain degree, but but definitely you're on it. It's it's its own bubble here in New York, yeah. too. So, I mean, were you, was it in like how instinctual was it for you to fall into just the moment of being like, well, you know, now I've, I've become familiar with some of these bands that live here. Like, let's yeah. I can do this. I know how to do this. Like, I know how to find a, a room. You know, what was that? Where was that? I got really bored with my job. I right. got really bored with just doing very little. And uh, it just was like, I was like, fine, screw it. And I, and I knew this guy, Peter, who ran Sound of Fury Records in a very similar situation to how I got started in Austin five years before. The guy couldn't, he couldn't do in-stores anymore. And he was like, I, people keep hitting up for in-stores, but I got no space. And it's because there was no, again, there was no stop on the underground road of, you know, punky bands to play in New York. So I was like, we'll do it. I'll, I'll find, I'll do it. And with no place, place hooked up or anything, I just kind of like, I'll take it. So I had a dish over this band, The Lowdown, mm-hmm. who I knew who I'd worked with on the West Coast and who was friends with my old roommate, the guy who played Legend of Zelda all the time, <laughs> Zach. <laughs> it was his little brother's band, actually. Oh, nice. Those dudes, or most of those dudes, went on to be Comets on Fire. Oh, great. Cool. But so I booked up The Lowdown. And Graham is one of the guys in that band. Graham. Yes. I don't remember everybody's names anymore. Right, yeah. You know, it's a great band. I, lo- I mean, I've always been a big fan. They're tight. Yeah. I don't know if they still play. I guess they probably do. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I think every once in a while. Yeah, know, probably. Every but few they, years. They were certainly hot, at a, very hot in the fitness. Yeah. Um, in any case, The Lowdown was a very different kind of band. Way weirder. And uh, and they were right out, of the wo- right out of the woods when I booked that show. Uh, I got a call from Ian Vanek from Japan there who was as much somebody trying to get involved in that like bi-coastal indie punk underground world as anybody in New York like he was the guy and he was like dude I'll hook it up and I'll help you and I'll help you get a PA and I'll help you get you know other opening bands and he, he helped sort of co-book the thing oh, amazing. and then later on found out he had been booking weird shows as opportunities for Japan to play which is a classic way to get started as a band. Sure. And he'd booked shows at like the Right Bank, which later on became a place, and he suggested that to me. And he'd booked shows at the Ship's Mast, a.k.a. Rockies, a.k.a. the Mermaid Bar, a.k.a. Where was that? It was right at, uh, under the Williamsburg Bridge on Kent Avenue. 
Oh, I, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, but it was of a different name. The last incarnation. I'm trying to remember. It had a bunch of names. It was the Rockies, the Rockstar Bar. Right, the Rockstar Bar is how I remember. It was on the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now it was, it's like some, yeah. it was like nothing. Phenomenally now. shitty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Run by a crazy man who like dealt cocaine. Yeah, it was it was a mess, but um, it. Uh, it was he hooked me up with all the spots so cool was, so like my first network of like places to put on shows all came out of Ian's help was Japanther a New York City band mm-hmm. oh, okay I didn't realize that cool yeah, yeah Ian was from Olympia oh okay right but the other dude Matt right was from uh, he was from Northport or Southport Long Island okay so, so they were one of the first to really like be in your shows too right yeah yeah they, 100%, they were trying to establish themselves and they saw me as sort of a, like Helper and help to do their thing, and it worked, and it helped help me and help them. Um, it's funny though, in retrospect, like although I still you know can go back and listen to some of their singles, and they're just classic songs. At the time, they they inspired so much animosity from, yeah. from people who I otherwise would have taste familiarity with, but a lot of people I knew hated them. Yeah, I wonder. I remember I've seen them a handful of times. I mean. Um Perhaps they're set may have antagonized people a little bit, but I don't know. I, you know, yeah. putting them up, uh, up against another like a duo like Lightning Bolt. I mean, are they that different? You know, I mean, like well, I would say they are quite a lot different. Yeah, actually, and they're similar aesthetically, but not similar. Yeah, maybe you know, aesthetically the performance. Right. Yeah. So the people and that's really a good way of putting it. The people that that liked Lightning Bolt, that were also into more sort of pretentious stuff, literally loathed Japan Third. So right. noise people, right? Like noise people, like. Yum FMU record collector type of people, that whole scene, which is a pretty big scene even now in New York City. Sure. Those kind of people just did not like that band because it was like, you know, coming out of a sort of uh, skate punky, pop punky. Yeah, record, definitely. Which gets back to the thing I used to do in Oregon where like I came into it as this guy who wanted to do like this pretentious indie rock that took itself seriously, you know? I was really into like Versus, you know, or somebody like that, who are, I still think are great. And that one record's terrific and they have other, a lot of good songs. But anyway, or as like an unrest or somebody like that was the kind of stuff that I wanted, kind of like, you know, intellectual, like you know, <laughs> right. book book learned. But then there was this other world of like spazzy punk recess records, kind of like uh-huh. kids puking everywhere kind of situation. <laughs> Japan there was like definitely trying to be popular with those people too. The way I saw it at the time, and this kind of like led to my sort of philosophy of booking for a few years, was that pop punk was dead and stupid <laughs> and that there needed to be something new that was like the entry point the bay you know the pop punk thing was like from 1988 bay, East Bay world like like Lookout Records thing like, right. that happened like Operation Ivy was a long time ago right you know Crimpshine or something and like I felt that it really needed to be updated there needed to be this new entry level thing and so to me when I saw Japan there it was like skate rock that's like has metal metal sounds but is like catchy as fuck. This was like this is the thing. This is this is what the kids will get into. And from there, there were bands that kind of came out and like sounded like them. But unfortunately, the sound alikes mostly I didn't like nearly as much. But then like Matt and Kim, sure, know, who were huge right off the bat, and they were just like caught fire. They were massive with like punk kids, and then they were, became really massive with this like teenagers. Uh, and very quickly, not the punk kids anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but so that was it. Worked on a certain level, but what it didn't become was this like you know anthemic kind of like anti-commerciality thing that the East Bay Punk always managed to be. Right. But oddly enough, I kept trying at it and I kept being like, well, it's got to be something that creates the new like 
sound of like teenagers coming into it and doing some kind of like spazzy shit. The problem at the time, back in the in the 2000s, I found was that every time you found something that had youth appeal, Vice would just attack it. Mm. Vice magazine, right? Very much Japan was one of them, and they really sunk their teeth into everything that came out that had like, like, like grass le- grassroots level like teen punk ang- energy. Right. Well, I they mean, look just, at Andrew WK. I mean, that was. I mean, that, that he was their poster boy during that time, or a little bit after that. Well, and obviously, Andrew WK was very tightly associated with like um, the White Stripes, right? Who they didn't own, but similar trajectory. That started out as like an actual like youthful, crunchy, punky thing, and then very quickly became this like super commercial radio world thing. But more importantly, on, this, on the level of underground stuff, Vice, in my opinion, really like usurped a lot of the like punk energy. Just over and over and over again, and that gets into the you no know, offense to them. It's very good marketing, you know. You know, Shane and Gavin and and uh, and uh, Saroosh were like bright guys, you know. But it was for commercial purposes, and, and honestly, there's I think there's a lot lost in the sense of like right. commercializing all youthful energy. But then again, right. the pop punk and the hardcore people had been commercialized themselves into the oblivion by then. They were all selling right. hundred dollar sweatshirts, you know, and like sure, you remember that world? Like that was the whole thing. It was very you know, disgustingly, like, commercialized. Yeah, I mean, and to a degree, Vice did, like, uh, inform people that were so far removed from the from the center of that, like, so beyond New York City or any major metropolitan area, like, yeah. that would filter down so that, like, you know, a Japanther could play, like, in some of these it's smaller true. markets. But it does, it, it is just, a it dangerous kind of... nature of the thing, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I don't think that ever really worked for Japanther on that, on that level. Sure. For other people, it did. They were only, I think they only released a single. But like, um, point being, it was, they had the same idea. They saw the same thing in them that I saw. Right. <clears throat> so what, a few, fast forward a few years, what was important to me was while I was doing those shows, was to kind of keep the same philosophy I had when I was running 17 Uncle Miles of like, I'm going to try and do stuff that I think is like really intellectually interesting and like now awesome, while also doing stuff that I think has really awesome pop energy. So some of the like pop punk, well, the equivalent, the, the amalgam of like the pop punk stuff and the emo stuff I used to do, ska stuff. I wasn't going to do that shit in New York, right. but I was going to do. But to me, that Japan Thrift sort of fulfilled the same role in a more tasteful, more interesting way because I thought those guys were like, well, they had a, they had connections to art world stuff. They all went to Pratt, right? They all and they like there was there was something more um, countercultural about them than it was ever true of emo and pop punk, no matter all the like angst embedded in those things. Right. So what is interesting is you fast forward just a few years later by like 2004, 2005 and I had been asked to start doing some like co-promotion on stuff for the very nascent garage rock scene. Mm-hmm. Mostly done by this guy Tom Highland. Right, right. He was like the connection in New York at the time. And he was a, like an independent promoter, yeah? He was. Yeah. And the important thing to remember is that pop punk at the time was still very like, um, it was very much a uniform. You know, like people because it was all sort of this extremely tight subculture of people who like were into garage on this particular level. Uh, it wasn't widely popular beyond itself. It still had more in common with, let's say, the rockabilly scene right? than it had in common with the indie rock scene. There's, yeah, no question about it. Yeah, yeah. Garage and rockabilly of that time were more... Tight, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the people forget like Estrus Records, which was a West, a West Coast thing, but that was like absolutely about this like greaser aesthetic. Right. You know, like, like guys with like cigarette rolled up, very 50s vibe, yeah. you know? So what happened is that around, and I had come to know like, you know, Jay Riotard and those kind of guys because Jay used to play in um, the Riotards from right. Memphis when he was a kid. And his ship, he was way more into a different thing. Him and so a few other people later on, the Black Lips, 
had that fan base that we're talking about, but also a fan base that was international, that was these like weird kind of German record collecting people. Seen people who like like Dead Moon a lot. Mm. Remember how Dead Moon used to be this right. like European cult band that could play like arenas in Germany, but here in New York they could barely play a bar. Right. I think I saw them. At, I think I saw them at the Mercury Lounge once. But yeah. But need these the same. Jay and Black Lips and a few other bands came out of the same garage thing that was like thousands of bands in the garage scene who just played like you know with rockabilly bands and maybe oi bands right, right. <laughs> not going too far on a limb to say that yeah but still yeah very that thing and um, but they but then they they had this thing where they were listening to because I guess they were collected by these record collector guys they became exposed to very rare 60s 60s vinyl and started sounding like this particular early 60s Brazilian uh, pop punk, or I'm sorry, garage punk bands, or garage bands where they weren't punk yet. Right. Or like, particularly something like this particular like record that got released in 1963 or something. So I hear this and I'm like, this sounds like the Beatles in Hamburg. Right. When I heard the early Black Lips stuff. And I was like, this is awesome. And all my friends were like, I don't get it. But I, I got it and like, was like, this shit's rad. And so I started booking, like, Tom would come to me and was like, I just want to book the Black Lips. Can I put my own bands on it? Can I mix? You can book like half garage bands, but I want to do half these other bands. So I got like a few bands that I thought worked as like a concentric circle aesthetic thing. And within a few, within a few, like six months or so, Vice had signed them. Right. They were playing huge shows and they were massive. And then suddenly that, the whole idea of like Garage as a branch of indie rock became a thing. And that was something, and so in a way that kind of realized what I hadn't seen as Japan there being the conduit for. And later, Matt and Kim, in a way, one of those kind of people. Yeah. Um, what happened really? What really became the kind of replacement for pop punk is Garage, mm. which is when you look at Burger Records <clears throat> now, right? Which very much is essentially a pop punk label, even though it comes out of, their their approach to it comes out of like the Garage. I mean, they do like Tali Sagal and people like that. I mean, right. the Best Coast, all of which was Garage, the Garage of like the late '90s or late 2000s thing, which. It's funny how that has sort of made, made its way back, and now everybody wants to sound like Blink One Eighty Two or something. <laughs> there is, it's, it is funny, yeah. There, there is bands are starting to reference that that major label sound even more unironically, like. Yeah. You know, um, but I mean, beyond even Black Lips and Matt and Kim and Japanther, I mean, there, you did so. There were so many bands, well, like, that, too, and so many reference points. And that was important. And I think that maybe I, because of the popularity and like the success of that branch of stuff I was working with, you know, like the stuff I was really doing a lot of that I was really into was more like Black Dice, right? You know, I was still doing Lightning Bolt shows for sure, which everybody came to. Yeah, I mean, I think people can associate you just as much with Matt and Kim and and, and that stuff, but with Black Dice, Acceptor. Um, you know, like uh, well, like Oneida, yeah, Oneida, Parts and Labor, Pterodactyl, that kind of side of stuff too. Yeah, and I think that's it's funny because that's a whole different <clears throat> thing that was going on. Some oh, of those big people, time. Like Parts and Labor and Pterodactyl maybe played with Japan's room, but Oneida never would have, right? Except right. on one of my festivals or something. You know? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. And so, like, that's the funny stuff about the scene back then is it was really like bifurcated, and people didn't really have a sense for like what else was happening right except for the stuff they paid attention to right but there were people who came out the, the people who did were like the youngest people and those are the people that now are like 30 and are you know were inspired and you know not to sound like self-important there were other people putting on shows too some of which better than mine but that was what was awesome about it was that there was this vibrant community of people doing music all of which was on some level intellectual even if it was sort of like had this anti-intellectual kind of spastic energy 
you know, honestly, all those guys are art, art school kids. Whether it's Matt and Kim or or uh, Managuar or or Japanther, those guys right. are all you know art school kids. And even the Black Lips guys. I mean, those guys, you know, maybe had a vibe of being like, oh, we're just drunk and dumb, but they aren't drunk and dumb. You know, right. <laughs> a lot of times the nature of any scene, even the even like a really like grassroots beautiful scene, is that it's about youth and it's about passing generations that just dissipate right you know and so as, though, though a few of us who like are active stay around and remember and are pleasant are there enough to have like remembered how it got from one incarnation to to five thousand generations later right um most people only are there for the one generation so you think of the whole like community of people that are coming to these shows and 90 percent of those people are unique to that year right you know? And in New York, because there's so many people who are just visiting all the time or just here briefly, they're yeah. unique to that month, they're unique to that second. And then you, but you go through, it feels almost like, like there's no there there. Like it's just this right. like thing. But you think back to the, to the, to the, the, the transformations of how it all, this became that, you know, like, like the story I was telling you about how like the guys from the rapture were coming out of that scene of guys in all black with skinny, skinny white right. ties, you know, white shoes or something. That, but like by the time that had become this other thing, they weren't even that anymore, you know. Right. That's just, an, I mean, that's that's minor compared to what we're speaking about in terms of interpersonal, real connections people have to people. But it's important in the sense of like understanding the fr- the sort of background energy of how this stuff goes. Like it's this endless morphing, evolution, evolving thing. Right. That means, but for all of its like lack of any continuity in a in a Sense, 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 way that makes basic sense is in fact the continuity is it's is is what is interesting about it because it is continu- continuous. Like I mean, myself for instance, or you, or Michelle, or John Chavez, or any of these folks, have, or or Rob Lowe, or any of these folks that have been around for all this time, are themselves continu- continu- continuity throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And the way that all of us have sort of shared experiences because of the fact that this is one of the last sort of in real life things people do aside from with their own families. Right, right. You know, I mean, going to a bar is not the same thing as going to a show. You know, old. It was like an old VFW, like tiny VFW hall that right. this guy, this artist guy, had gotten. We started putting the show. We're setting it up. We moved everything. We have all the others like busting ass. We turn this place into a venue. It looks bright. It looks like it's supposed to look. And immediately the cops show up. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, and then we ended up moving it to. We had to have another show go. The whole time I have another set of interns running this show at this place called the Syrup Room. Oh, I don't even remember that. Ingram place. Street. Okay. Ingraham, one hundred Ingraham. And so finally, after all so much time has passed, we just moved the Slit Show to be the headliner of that thing. And right. Had like five bands play at. Because those Syrup. were some some pretty you know you did their last shows really I mean like some of yeah, their last performances true. with Ari up you know like, yeah Ari was she must have done it about a year later two years later yeah and she was you know I met Ari because she just started showing up at shows. She oh, was, amazing! She was friends with Semi Automatic, Scalakiko, who and Rop. Rapu was also in the Peaches, mm. all these like kill rock stars, but like these bands that were like kill rock stars, um, lookout records, like, like yeah. overlap. Uh, and uh, he was in Rice. Rice, yes. Yeah. He's and he he lived in he lived in San Diego. He lived in Olympia. He lived and then he lived in Brooklyn. Really, like a guy who was all over the place. Now he runs. Now he's the executive director of Bark, mm. which is like a huge uh, animal shelter, no kill animal shelter in Williamsburg. So you have like all of these like, you know, generations of bands too, where it's like some that are, 
now disbanded, um, defunct, and some that have grown to be like, you know, super commercial or successful. Yeah, I mean, like Matt here in commercials every right. month or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's, and you can name a, a bunch of other ones. I've, I have several of them written down. Even, yeah. you know, uh, No Age is another great one oh, that, sure. that did great with Dirty Projectors, um, Animal Collective. Like these are all that kind of came up the ranks well, and, with. And, and to further back, The Rapture. Right, The Rapture. Um, Animal Collective. Yeah. Although I didn't do that much Animal Collective, but even TV on the radio. I did right. some other stuff with those guys. Right. Um, and then from Oregon, you know, like there was there were some people that I worked with in those days that are like, that became things. You know? Right, sure. Um, it's true. And it's it's funny, you know. Most of these aren't people that I can just be like, "Hey, you want to come play a show?" Well, yeah. <laughs> can it's you ever like that really, anymore? But like, yeah. you know, they, they have people have careers and they have right. handlers and things become what they are. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's it's interesting how they've how they've all moved forward. You know, like well, like for instance, saw Health last night. hadn't done a show for Health in seven years. You know, so it's interesting to see how people kind of move and become right. different things. You know, Dan Deacon is a good example. Yeah, sure. Um, the Black Lips, who we've mentioned a bunch of times. You know, like, but there's. Even more that I can't even think of right now. There's like, became something greater. Right. So now like the first show Grimes ever played was at the Silent Barn. And oh, amazing states. So, um, you all. I mean, you're doing stuff. At, I mean, Market Hotel is a venue here in, yeah. in Brooklyn that you're. Um... <laughs> Hello, Shakai. Can you take that to the other room, please? Thank you. I guess the point I'm trying to make too, as as we kind of come to a close too, is that uh, it's you know. Um, you uh, were like just like with 17 nautical miles and like this these periods of time where uh, even at South by Southwest and then the, yeah. the festival you, you you did for a few years in Mexico and your time in like Tijuana these are like these kind of really impactful things and um, you know Market Hotel also played a big part of that yeah. as a very a sort of symbolic thing yeah but it but it went to have kids also 285 can, of course. And those are two monumental rooms for a while, like, you know, in the canon of Death by Audio and Glasslands and so forth, you know, like, um, yeah. but 285 Kent closed, Market Hotel closed for a while and now just recently reopened. Well, and arguably in a very different sort of spirit, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, same spirit in terms of ideals, but like, obviously it's a different time. Right. Why reopen it though? Like, what, what well, why? would, yeah. It means something to, to young people, you know, and like, it means something to different young people than we're going to before. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. It's, it's worked out in a weird way in the sense that... It's worked out in a funny way because the way that... The, the manner by which we were able to open when we opened was through this sort of temporary licensing situation, which sort of limited how many events we could do market. You know, neither here nor there, except for the fact that it meant that we ended up doing just a few shows, but all the shows... But there's a lot of interest in doing shows, right? So we had to, we, you know, Rick mostly booked them all, and uh, it was all basically almost every single show was a sold out show. So like for a year almost, we've been doing ninety five percent of our shows have all been sold out in advance. Amazing, amazing. But unfortunately, a f not a very effectual way to like see a lot of old faces. A lot right. of the people that that I have history with from there, you know, they're just not the kind of people who buy advance tickets online. Right. And so they don't, uh, they don't see them. But you do see other kids. You see really enthusiastic young, young people. And that's what that spot was always about to me. You know, that spot was always like about having a spot where a band could have their moment, their blow-up moment, the moment when like they become, you know, they, they, 
they grow out of just being this local band that plays, you know, in the parlance of booking support slots or whatever. Right. And they become a national headliner. Because it is, uh, what's the capacity there? It's, it's like, roughly. It's, it's like in the hundreds, like 400. Yeah. So yeah. it's a jump from playing a silent barn or totally. Death Audio or any number of the current rooms, too. Exactly. You could headline Bowery Ballroom or something, a music hall way. It's for, slightly smaller than Bowery. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, and which is in some ways good for some people because not right. selling out that moment is, sure. is, yeah. is, is, as you know, it's not, 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 not the moment, it's not the, the, it's not the, the, the optic you're looking for. Right. It's not a good look. So some. in a way, the market is in some ways very aware of and, mar- and, and designed towards speaking to a certain music industry desire and demand. And I think that that is not unlike my South by Southwest series, which I did, which was meant to be like, hey, we're going to go where all these music industry people are and we're going to do these shows that have more, you know, joie de vivre than what is happening at fucking South by Southwest, which is the opposite of that word. <laughs> you know, no, nothing against them. Well, yeah, tons against them. What am I saying? But, you know, that's one organization I've never cared for. But they, uh, you know, you got you got there's there's a whole there's a whole set of bullshit that one buys into once you have a music industry career right having that big headlining show in new york city where your picture's taken and it's in the new york times or whatever that is a first step on a journey and a lot of that journey is compromise a lot of that journey is exciting a lot of that journey is disappointing and a lot of that journey is just a change to me, it's important that there are there is an opportunity for the underground, whatever that means anymore. But more importantly, the grassroots that the bands come out of, and more importantly, just the place that loves music, where everybody who works there loves music, where everybody who involved in it is there because they they really love what they're doing and they love seeing music. Where the people who, people who are organizing the event on some level are fans, right. and I think that's something that you just don't get with the sort of more commercial music industry spaces, you know, which is not to say those spaces don't do a very good job. They do an excellent job. I mean, Bowery Barham, I think, is probably the best room in New York City. I mean, the sound is amazing. The vibe is amazing. The tight lines are terrific. It's just a great room. It feels good. It's exactly the right intimacy. Yeah, definitely. I love that space. But it is also a corporate machine that is like churning out a product every night of the month. It has to because I'm sure their rent is astronomical and their operating expenses are through the roof you know it's this is not criticism but the, I do think there's an important there's a really essential moment to be had with especially given all the what I was saying about how like the the scale of the scene has changed and in do in the scale of the scene the individuals and the sort of demographics of who's who those people are that may that fill a room have themselves has that has changed fundamentally in some ways and so there's a huge part of that adventure and journey I was talking about about a band becoming a national band or whatever is about losing a lot of your diehards because they just turned off by these other people. Right. And that's, you know, the classic hipster, like, I was into them before they, before they were cool. You know, so like, <laughs> it's a, that's a common, common way of complaining. But, you know, there's a reason that people feel that way. And it's because people do change. And a lot of times I feel that bands start off on the journey with bad bad guidance a lot of fucking 20 year old kids all the time right. and they they step down that road without really having good people whispering their ear and how to how to handle their challenges and they very quickly kind of like circle their wagons and come up with 
a way to be a reliable, predictable, replicable product every night for the 250 days out of the year they're touring. And that's a, that's a real challenge. You know, like, for one thing, playing on a certain scale is just fundamentally a different experience than playing in a small room. You know, like you see, you know, what are the Rolling Stones famous for? They're, or, or even or David Bowie. They're famous for, trans, for, for realizing that playing an arena or a stadium is simply not anything like playing a little room, you know? Yeah. And so what you're really doing is doing a big, like, marionette puppet show of, like, what a concert's supposed to look like, you know? And that's even true on a smaller scale. I think that those are the kinds of things. That, that on a much smaller scale is one of the things that I think bands go through when they get big. Right. And so for some people that becomes a like, well, shit, let's just get it. Let's just nail this down to be a color by numbers thing that we can just always knock out every single night. And I don't even have disrespect for that. Cause a lot of times that's actually very impressive. In the same way seeing like a Broadway show can be very yeah. impressive. Because it's like just production. It's like these guys have honed it and they're practiced and they're tight. But I just think there's a point where like when you send them off, when you break that champagne bottle on the hull and you're sending off this national band to go be something, that there's a moment when that is still in the territory of the independent community. It's still in the territory of love for the stuff and not just like, who's on the bill tonight? Okay, whatever. Slut times, you know, like <laughs> like let's 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 let that let's let, let's save that for the next day. This send-off moment should be this should be a celebration, and so I really feel that Market Hotel needed to exist because New York has just become because of what we all made Brooklyn become in the last twenty years. It is this extremely important market, for lack of a better word, that makes so much impact on everything else. And if we make everything in New York that much like playing the venue at the casino or something, you know, it's like beautiful digital sound with like exactly perfect replication, right. and black, black blacked out walls and everything's perfect and boring and there's you know the exact same stanchions of, you know all the, all the cliches of like a, a lot of these venues that exist yeah and even the ones that are like that but with a designer came in it's like well you've taken, taken a big black room that's perfect and brought in somebody who's like doing the indie rock equivalent of TGA Fridays <laughs> you know nothing against that either but you know right. Market Hotel is a place that looks like New York City it is not fundamentally aesthetically changed I mean you haven't seen it since it reopened but you I haven't it. It has not fundamentally aesthetically changed. Although there's a lot, I like to say it's much cleaner. But I like to say there's a lot fewer piles of things. Does anyone living? Is anyone <laughs> living there? there? You can't live in a venue. Last there. time I was there, people lived in there, and there were lots of piles of things, including <laughs> probably people, right? And their and their things. But no, all that's gone. It's it's a it's a clean place. You don't feel like you're going to get scabies. And that area now is like, I mean, it's uh, amazing. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, but but Myrtle Broadway itself, that intersection is still quite seedy. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, important. It still looks like Taxi Driver there. Right. Maybe you go a block away and it doesn't. Sure. It does look like Taxi Driver there because that's where a lot of people get off the train. There's a massive amount of housing projects right there. Right. Some of that aspect is not going to change, um, at least not, not for a long time. How involved are you now? I am the executive director. I am the maintenance man. So you oversee everything? Everything. Are you there every day? No. I'm there about three three days a week, cool. four days a week. Are you there? Are you settling? You're not settling at night and stuff like that, though, right? There's you've got there's people for that now. I have right? a manager, right? <laughs> but I manage him very closely, and he's he's amazing. And you know, Rick Leistung is sort of is doing almost all the booking. Right. We also do a show like last night we did a show with Pop Gun, right? Who I know from forever ago, and also Glasslands. Um, and then we do outside stuff with other people. We don't, to be honest, we don't really have an in-house at the moment. Um, 
that may change. It may just be Rick. We'll right. see. But uh, we, you know, it's it's definitely doing fine the way it's working. Whether or not it's like long term sustainable methodology, we don't know because we haven't. We're not there yet. Right. Everything we've been doing so far has been temporary. So we've had temporary public assemblies for occupancy. Right. We've had temporary licensing for alcohol. Right. So every single night, I have to get a temporary license for alcohol. So, which really limits not only how often you can do things, but what you do. Right. Because you have to be, everything has to be approved by the police. Once they've approved it, they have a vested interest in seeing what you've done because their signature is on the line. So, so they'll they, be around. They're around. So it really limits some of the chances you might take. So some of what we've done, I think, I think I'm, not, I'm not, I'm certainly proud of what we've done, but I would have liked to do more things that we haven't done. Right. Um, the good news is, is we've only been operating two or three days a week. So that get, leaves four or five days a week that we can now do with whatever we wish which may or may not be more which probably will not just be more of the same and so what what's going to change is during this we opened December of last year with a Cedar Kinesia first time I'd worked with them in 18 years wow but um, we opened before everything was done because we just needed to it had been too long we didn't have any money right so we started operating with this temporary licensing solution which was used to pay for the last things we had to do, which were a fire alarm system, a fire sprinkler system, and an, and an elevator. So the city will allow you to open under conditions for what's called a temporary public assembly license. But you did that to raise funds, and in doing so, paid for this last sort of wave of legalization bullshit we had to do, which is you know like one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of stuff. Wow, it's okay. a lot. It's a lot. It's very expensive to make a place that size safe and legal and right. Some of which is legit, some of which I think is grossly mismanaged by the authorities and or the industries that do construction and deeply overpriced in some point, in some levels. But nonetheless, it is what it is, and you have to have this stuff. Um, it's been an uphill battle from the day one, you know, just like always everything's cost more than one would expect. But I'm proud to say that everything we've done there has come in. We still only spent, you know, less than, let's say, a quarter of what anybody else who opens a commercial rock club in New York currently is spending. Right. So I could make a lot of noise. Um, so that's that's good. It's not the tiny amount I would have liked to have done it for, which I think would have been more inspiring if I could say, hey, you can do this for $50,000 you raised from among 25 friends. You know, but that's unfortunately not possible. But what is possible is that you can do it with the amount of money that normal people and sort of the college-educated upper-middle class could theoretically cobble together with a handful of like-minded individuals, which is still to me inspiring because it doesn't mean everything has to be has to involve a like you know five million dollar you know like investment by some you know some like corporate right. know, like venture capitalist firm or something you know I think that uh, that when you take that kind of money you also change what you're doing whether it's in, whether you're not for profit and it's institutional money or if it's fully capitalist and it's and it's and it's uh, investor money money changes everything Don't, nobody gives you money without expectations and whether even even in the not-for-profit community and market hotel is a not-for-profit um, even grants come with strings attached right. even if they're invisible strings you change what you're doing to, to 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 suit what your funders want whatever kind of funding it is so it's important to me that the funding was minimal as little as we could possibly do. That's not as little as I would have liked, but it's definitely a lot less than most places. Right. And I think it hopefully sets us up to survive in the long run, and it also sets us up to be able to do the things creatively that I think we'd like to be. 
specifically because I really do believe that there needs to be an, an all ages space first of all because of being that place for young people that is doing shows that are big enough that young people and their sort of limited exposure to the underground and to things that are hard to find will come upon at least some one percent of every kid in New York knows about this place existing that's a shit ton of people right um, and I think it's important to be there for those kids that are seeking out something different because it's inspirational and there needs to be a place where they can sit there and the band plays on a stage that they can touch you know that the band is right here it's no higher than their waist that the band has there's no green room the band hangs out in 20, the whole time they're there the band walks through the crowd it's a communal experience so they need to realize that they themselves could be that musician they themselves could be following their creative dream and the thing that they find so moving and emotional is something that they could produce themselves so it's important to me that market exists for that reason and also important because the artists who honestly as a 41 year old man I know are not that different than these fans I'm talking right. about they're only a few years different in age that they themselves realize that they can have that there is that connection possible with an audience even at this higher echelon of, of production a higher echelon of of appeal and 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 um well, just higher number of people in the room capacity right. and like so a lot of things we've done at market have been to to kind of keep the old spirit while at the same time really rising to the occasion because I want it to be powerful as that as that modus operandi as that kind of um, as that mission statement so one of the things we've done is we that the production is amazing we had some hiccups with sound at the very beginning which was maddening to me but we finally got it nailed in and now the sound is amazing nice and I'm really proud of that you know I feel that it's easily as good as the sound at any com- any comparable sized room in, in New York City uh, which is extremely important because as I've said professionalism has like come to a much smaller level not to much lower level of it capacity. has right and not to mention the amount writing on it for these people like I realize these bands careers have so much writing on this photo op there's a lot more pressure than there was when you were doing shows at the Rockstar Bar, you know, like on the bands. Yeah, they have to. They have to do it, you know, because it's like there's a lot of people offering them gatekeeper opportunities to walk through doors that are usually closed. Right. And right. so we realize our, our place in that that process, and this is about realizing, like, hey, I don't necessarily like everything about this process, but there's an opportunity in feeding into the existing milieu in order to reach out to the artists and to reach out to the fans. The music industry is just a vessel, right? in my opinion. Now, I, I have tons of respect for people, and I certainly don't judge people for their work, what they're involved in, or how they're... The system is what the system is built up to be. Most, no, one, no one working is a cog, unless your name is like, you know... Unless you're one of the guys who owns the agencies, you know? Like, you know and even those guys are mostly people I get along with and like, you know? Right. But it's funny, you know, that most of the heads of the agents are people that I book shows with at 17 dollars I don't doubt that. Tom Windish... You know, um, Eric Dimenstein, Robin, right? Um, all of those, uh, uh, Bosch, all those people are people that I did shows with at 17 Elk Miles. And they're still, everyone's still involved. I mean, I in, in very, you know, <laughs> different levels. And <clears throat> it's a weird thing. It's a weird yeah. thing. Well, you've done a lot for a lot of bands and a lot of booking agents, too. <clears throat> and, um, I just, I appreciate your time doing this with me, man. So, well, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm glad to talk about it. It's not that often I get to sort of like, yeah, well, like exponentially. Better. You have a great story too, man. Oh, thanks. And I wish I had it more, <laughs> more form. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it's good. But you know, it really, I really do think you should talk to Rob. I will. I yeah. think he's 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 definitely in this 
circle and has yeah. some very intelligent I'd love to. Yeah, cool. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. I want to thank Todd P. Not just for his taking his time to do this um, conversation with me, which is definitely appreciated. Uh, I just want to thank him, too, for all his work in New York. Because the guy's put up with a bunch of shit, too, to make shit come together and create spaces and, you know, just, like, find spots before they, you know, get shut down, closed, um, bulldozed. So it is appreciated, all the work uh, after all these years. I hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation and found it somewhat insightful, um, especially because it's more of a peek into the the life and the career of someone that you may only know as like the guy like that you settle up with at the end of the show or the guy that puts on the you know that that um you know puts on the show or you see in the back of the room or whatever misconceptions you may have or preconceived notions of the promoter things like that so i appreciate you guys taking the time to check it out um you can subscribe to the houseless podcast on itunes it's also available on soundcloud and stitcher if you prefer those methods um, i definitely appreciate um, you subscribing on itunes if you can um, or just you know tell people about it spread the word um, you know this episode and all the episodes before are produced by by me peter agassin edited and engineered by cj stewart now he's out in Humboldt County, California, so I uh, want to send a special shout out to him. The theme music is produced, written, and arranged by Dame Funk and Keith E. Day. Um, you can follow us on Twitter for whatever that's worth um, at Houseless Pod. If you wanted to email us for any reason, hey, perhaps you wanted to advertise, uh, you can reach the Houseless at houselesspodcasts at gmail dot com um and uh there are a couple little things i wanted to shout out little notes uh, before we close out on this show um i'm going to see my man andrew broder fog tonight at um at the king's theater here in brooklyn as i'm recording this intro um we had him on episode 11 of the house list he's opening up for bony bear that should be interesting um I picked up a book uh, last week. You know, I love uh, New York City nightlife history. I really like it anywhere in, in the world particularly, but the defunct New York City venues is something that I am a huge fan of. And there's a great book put out by um, Evan Arbach and DJ Stretch Armstrong published, um, who published this thing? Oh, Powerhouse. It's called No Sleep NYC Flyers from 1988 to 1999. It's a pretty great um, little piece of history with tons of flyers that are, uh, you know, beautiful color flyers scanned and tickets and show bills and shit like that. Um, primarily the DJ nightlife culture. Um, definitely recommend it. It's, uh, picking it up is super cool. Um, I also want to send a shout out to my friend Matt, who I ran into one of my very rare times going out. I don't go out that much anymore, but uh, just as a reminder, and I'll probably, I'm hoping to have him on the show to promote this, uh, the documentary about Death by Audio, which is called Goodnight Brooklyn. Um, 
I am really looking forward to seeing that. I think it's going to have a short theater run in New York and L.A. So look out for that. I don't have a ton of information on it right now, but um, particularly, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, um, it's just my personal little uh, note, you know, to seek it out. It's called Goodnight Brooklyn. It's a documentary about Death by Audio, the music venue. Um, which inhabited the same city block in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where 285 Kent, Glasslands, and there was even another venue sort of next to 285 Kent for a while that was like, you know, occasionally you would see stuff there. But none of those are around anymore. Of course, it's inhabited uh, where the uh, Vice building is. So there's a lot of history, a lot of stories there, probably a lot of ghosts um, floating around uh, amidst all that, too. So um, I wanted to kind of big them up. Um, also, I just found out a good friend of mine is in the hospital right now. So I want to send positive uh, thoughts and prayers out to him. Uh, a beloved New York City show promoter and uh, um, sort of nightlife purveyor, but just a really great human being, Mac McFarland uh, of Concrete Jungle, which is like this, the longest running kind of jungle and drum and bass uh, residency party. Um, but started here in New York in um, <clears throat> the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Mac and I worked together when we kind of co-presented with Daddy Kev uh, the Low End Theory Party here in New York City, which is a short-lived version of the long-running series in L.A. Um, I just found out today that Mac is in the hospital, so I'm really hoping that he is feeling better and here's to a speedy recovery, man. I have been there. Um, it is like you know, uh, like nothing else. So I really hope that Mac, you're feeling better. Um, a lot of people are pulling for you and a lot of people love you, man. So, uh, I have great memories of all the stuff we did at the knitting factory. He's a good, good dude as anyone can attest. So I wanted to just say that, um, before we get up out of here and what else? Yeah, that's about it for right now. I got, a um, a, a few more great, great episodes coming up before we wrap up 2016 so look out for those i might try to do another double uh episode week um you know so yeah thank you guys once again and thanks to todd p and i will catch you guys next week take care y'all peace